0: So tonight I wanted to talk about um, this talk that I developed kind of on the spot a couple of weeks ago, which I really just call the four qualities of an awakened life. And one of the things that I miss about teaching regularly in a community is for years in, in Nashville, I had a Dharma center that I taught at. And then in Los Angeles when I was part of Against the Stream, I, I had weekly classes. And at one point I had two classes a week. And so I was teaching all the time. And sometimes I wouldn't have time to prepare a talk. And I would just kind of show up and I would have to come up with something. Um, Which I actually rather like and it felt kind of zen. And it also felt sort of like I had to trust that I had enough built up dharma and enough of this memory of practice that I should be able to say something that makes sense. And then I find when I, you know, this is my third time here and a lot of times when I go... To a center for the first time, I feel this kind of obligation or this level of stress of really feeling like I need to deliver something that's very in infidelity to the to the tradition or something very classic insight or this kind of a way of teaching. And I, I don't know what that's about, but I find that I was just in Albuquerque for the first time, and I noticed that coming up of like you better make sure you deliver the goods down here, you know. And <laughs> you better make sure that this is coherent and it makes sense and. Um, so this, as a job, as something to do, I have a very weird, strange, uh, this is a strange thing to do. Um, and so tonight I wanted to talk about this because I was invited, a couple of weeks ago I was in Bozeman, Montana, and they have a Zen group, and I've become pretty good friends with the, with the woman up there who teaches the Zen group, and she invited me to her class. And then when I got to her class, I found out that I was going to offer a talk at that class. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I try not to turn down invitations, uh, and, and I don't have much of a Zen background, so I spent the 30 minutes of the meditation at the beginning of the Zen group writing a talk in my head, <laughs> which it was Zen, so I was like, I can do whatever I want, this is Zen. <laughs> it made, made me kind of think about, maybe, I, maybe I'm in the wrong tradition. Um, and I just had this reflection of like, you know, what, what is it that we're doing here? You know, like really a really inquiry, a contemplative practice in my own experience. Of what are we doing here and, and what does it look like? What are the qualities of actually living a life of Dharma? That's not just something we do uh, 30 minutes in the morning or something that we're kind of interested in, but something that we actually really live, which has been something that I've been really trying to do for multiple decades now. And it's, it's very hard work. I think this is very hard work of being being a human Uh, who wants to embody qualities of of, of non-harming and and qualities of mindfulness and and wakefulness and and having to come to terms with all of the aspects of our mind and our experience that are not necessarily that pleasant to look at. I don't know if you have these qualities in your mind, but I I still see stuff arise in my mind regularly where I'm like, really? Still this? (laughs) Again? How many times is it going to take? Which, of course, is not the best attitude of mind <laughs> to be practicing. With. So I'll say what they are, then I'll go through them slowly. Uh, for me, it, it, it's about embodiment, openness, interest, and availability, which, ironically, is four things, which is Buddhism is very big on lists of four. Um, and so when I think about this, really, like when I really think about what is embodiment, so much of the practice clearly is about becoming an embodied person. And to me, that means really learning how to live in my sensory experience. Really actually trying to be present in my life. Really, really present in my life. Without being preoccupied with what I need to do later and what happened yesterday. And well, gee, what about this? And you didn't really do good sit over there. And next time you do this, you need to make sure. All of the ways on which I'm, I, I find myself, my mind is constantly pulling me out of my present experience. Because there's something else floating around the universe that needs my attention more than being in this room with y'all right now. And actually, to some degree, I can feel this energetic thing in my mind that's like kind of pulling me almost all the time. And so when we think about embodiment, we really, you know, we practice with our breathing, right? We practice with our body. We practice with really trying to uh, regulate our nervous system. You know, there's a lot of scientific benefits of actually being embodied. And the Buddha talks about this so much in, in the tradition around, you know, bringing awareness to the five senses. I read that and I kind of just, I'm like, yeah, 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 the five senses, I learned that in kindergarten. What's next? Where's the good stuff? I'm like, no, but wait a minute. Only one, you know, every single moment, six things are happening. They're coming, the sensory experience really is arising and passing away. And can I actually monitor that from a first person kind of empirical science, can I really? And you know what? It's not that easy. Because I'm preoccupied with me being a person living in a world who has to do a thing and didn't do a thing and better do a thing and how come I didn't do a thing and they didn't do their thing. You know, as like I get pulled into that. It's like a vacuum. It's like, Thoof! And then I'm gone. And then what happens 20 minutes later? Someone rings a bell. <laughs> I think the reason they only ring the bell is to bring us back into the room. Not that the meditation is over. <laughs> but you missed it. Moving on. (laughs) Is it the ending or the beginning? I can't figure that out. And then he talks about how we embody our experience through these five aggregates, that really what's happening in every moment, we have the forms, the physical forms and the senses. We have feeling. Every single moment has form and feeling, these pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. Perception, the way we perceive, the activations, the sankars, the... The to-do mind—the mind that's always telling you to do something—better do this, better do that. Don't do this, don't do that. What are you doing now? You're just going to sit here and do nothing? You're going, to do, going doing that back to the breath thing? You still haven't got that one down yet? Check it out. I got something better for you to do. Well, what is it? Well, give me. right, I'll hear you out. But I got to get back to this thing over here. It's just like onslaught. And then this experience of consciousness is like really trying to be to be embodied. is I think, really a prerequisite to to this awakened life, and when we, when we come to these groups and we go on retreats, it's really what, what we're practicing, is we're really trying to, to wake up to our bodies. Um, and I spend a lot of my time, you know, really trying to remember that, and trying to really be in the pulse of life itself, which is the, the pace of life is the in and the out breath. And my mind can go 5,000 miles an hour, but my breathing in or my breathing out is actually at a pretty reasonable speed. Right? Imagine if you could go this fast, just all the time. Oh, that would be great. Right? So I think that's a part of what we're trying to do. And also these, these, these qualities are kind of long-term, but also they're almost available in the present moment because the next thing that I find is that as, I've, as I become embodied, what I learn how to do is to become open. I learn how to become open and I learn how to um, become uh, Receptive. You know, because I know that for me, much of my life of, of having uh, not trusting people or not trusting the world or feeling defended or feeling unsure, if I wasn't open, I was actually mostly guarded. You know, like oh, someone, I'm going to get hurt. You know, so there's a way in which I've already built this. We've all done it to some degree, some kind of psychological wall of defense where we're not very open in, in, until people earn that from us, maybe, and then we might get to a point where it's really, really hard to earn. And we may be lucky if we have one or two people that we can actually be open to. The other thing that I've noticed about being open is really being open to the fact that my mind is maybe not giving me the best information. <laughs> being open to the fact that maybe, gee, I, I don't necessarily agree with you, and I, I see how you could see it that way, but gee, maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe I'm not, Maybe I'm not right about that. I've had to do a lot of work to be open to the idea that I'm not necessarily right about everything all the time. In fact, probably statistically I'm wrong at least most of the time. <laughs> mm? And because of my perception and because of my memory and be, all of the all of the information I get from my mind is filtered through this very very untrained kind of filter of like my conditioning and my memory and my subjective reality and all of my defense mechanisms. And what comes out on the other side of that is this kind of murky water that needs to be uh, reappraised and needs to be looked at again and say, well, gee, I, I'm, maybe I'm not so sure about this. Um, and having to be open to uh, critical feedback from other people, also having to be open to praise. Historically, until really probably in the last decade or so, I was more comfortable if you were insulting me than if you were praising me. That would be more comfortable for me. I'm like, oh, thank God. But if somebody actually gave me like real praise, of like, oh, I really appreciate this. or like, Being a teacher, this has been an uncomfortable area for me, and I think it's probably why I've thrived. It's like when people give you praise or, 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 or thanks or gratitude, it took me a long time to be able to be open to that without being like, well, you know, I mean, so just really having to be open to these kinds of things. And I didn't even have any ability to, to recognize that for a long time. And then I woke up to that. I was like, wow, what's up with that? Why would I rather be insulted than praised? That doesn't feel, that doesn't sound right. I don't want that to be my filtering system. You know, and really being, so even when we sit, being in in the practice we just did, how open can I be to what's arising in my experience? You know, and one thing that we learn, I've learned in practice, is it's, it's not the conditions that create suffering, it's my relationship to the conditions that create suffering which for me is a very bitter, bitter pill to swallow. Because I'm like, I mean, are you sure that that's always the case? Because sometimes the conditions really seem like it's their fault. <laughs> you know? And then really being open to like, well, what's going on internally? That's one thing that's so great about the practice is we become very familiar with what's going on internally. And all of these internal mechanisms of defensiveness and things that arise. And how long does it take for them to arise? They arise almost instantaneously. And usually I notice for me that when I, when I try to reappraise or relook at a situation, usually by the third or fourth time I look at it, the information is getting a little bit more accurate. I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm seeing the other person's perspective a little bit. Or I'm open to the fact that maybe we're not seeing the situation clearly. And then I notice that as I become more embodied and more open, um, there's two ways I would look at it. Is A, I become more interested in the world, in others, and less interested in getting what I want. You know, we talk about this experience of anatta, Latin Buddhism, which is a very kind of confused concept, this idea of a not-self, which I think is probably, in our modern culture, probably one of the teachings that's the most kind of what? Um, And it's not so much whether there's a self or a not-self that's important, but I've noticed that I'm a lot less interested in myself the more I practice. I'm a lot less interested and preoccupied in the wants and the not-wants of this character, Dave Smith, that seems to follow me around everywhere I go. (laughs) I'm more interested in other people. I'm more interested in the world. I'm I'm also more fascinated... Like with things like, you know, driving over here through the red through Red Mountain Pass, or I'm more fascinated by nature. I'm more because I've trained my sensory experience to be more embodied, sunsets seem to look better than they ever did. You know, really trying to be fascinated in the natural world. It's like, wow, just being fascinated with the fact that I even that I'm even here. You know? We, um, we had a very good uh, year in Paonia for fruit, and, you know, we ate, my, I have a son who's one, and he my, he loves he likes pretty much anything you put in front of him, but he really likes peaches. So uh, my, my one-year-old baby probably ate a box of peaches, <laughs> you know. And now we don't have any peaches, we're like, what are we going to do? The baby's going to freak out. He hasn't noticed, but... But to see him grab the peaches, I remember we just watching him the first time. Me and my wife were staring at him like lunatics, kind of. Like, just watching him take the peach and put it in his mouth. And his whole, like, he just, like, exploded. Like, what is this? <laughs> and, and, and just, like, I'm like, I don't have that experience when I eat a peach. <laughs> I don't have that experience with anything anymore. Unless it's really terrible, then I'm like, what is this? <laughs> right? But we, we, we having kids is great because you see how they can be fascinated by things that we totally and completely take for granted. Like when we first moved out to Peony, before we were in Peony, we were in Los Angeles where our son Emmett grew up. And so we lived with my mom and dad as we were building our house. And my parents have chickens. And so Emmett you know, grew up in L.A. He's pretty sure that Eggs come from the supermarket. That's where you get the eggs. So he would go down in the morning and get eggs with my dad. And one morning he came into the kitchen, and his mind was so totally blown. He's like, did you know that the eggs come out of the chicken? He's like, the chickens just poop them out. Like, he's just like, can't even believe that that's how it happened. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, chickens and eggs... It's the age-old question, isn't it? What came first? But to just see the level of fascination. Like, I, I, I don't have that as much as I wish that I used to have. I feel like I'm getting it back. But really, the ways in which we take things for granted and we overlook some of the simple beauties in the world and I think also we live in a really hard time culturally and politically and socially and all that stuff. And, you know, if we look at the work of Rick Hansen, these meditators who study neuroscience, it's like we do have this built-in negative attention bias. And our mind is always kind of, for survival reasons, is, you know, when was, it, when was there ever a good story on the news? Mm-hmm. Like, share this wonderful thing that people did in this part of the world today. Never. And so we we consume all this kind of garbage, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's a wonder why our attention bias, negative attention bias, can almost be like a terminator strength, Mm -hmm. you know, that I've had to completely retrain my mind and my experience to really uh, enjoy the peach and the sunset and, and, and a great song and really trying to get back into that way of being interested in things that are much bigger than than what i want or what i don't want or what i like or what i don't like because i think we get to a point in our lives where that's sort of what and that's sort of the status quo isn't it everybody we live in such an individualistic world especially our our culture gets more and more individualistic where people are getting like individual meals like shipped to their house now <laughs> it's like everything is like everything is like single user purpose for just one time and we've really cut ourselves off from that kind of shared humanity, um, which is, again, which is why I think it's so, you're so fortunate to have, to have a community of people that you can practice with because we've become so individualized. And also we have the highest, we have record numbers of depression and anxiety and epidemic of shame that this, this over-focus on individuality is clearly not panned out. And so I find that these qualities of becoming really embodied and open and interested, uh, really the fourth thing that I think is, and I don't think about this so much until uh, I really thought about it, is like this idea of being available. Because we're not available. We live in the world, we live in, the world in the glorification of busyness. Like I was on a call today with a bunch of Buddhist meditators that took us like a month to set up and we were going to do it on Zoom but we couldn't even do it on Zoom because not everybody could get to a computer so we had to do it on a phone. And the first thing I said, I was like, wow, we're very very available people, aren't we? We can't even get a time scheduled, right? And I I was really inspired by this idea. There's a teacher who I really like named Shinzen Young who you might know of, who's a mindfulness teacher who's developed this very technical and advanced style of meditation which I rather like. But he was talking about living in a monastery in Japan where he was for 10 years and he studied Soto Zen and his first really role model and his role model up till this day was the Zen master who lived in, uh, in the monastery and he watched him and one thing that he said about him was this was a very awakened, very embodied person and he got to the point where he, he didn't do much, he was just available to anybody. Anybody from the village or the town would come up to the monastery, and the Zen master was always available to talk to anybody about anything. And you know, he was just really available, you know. And I, it really, really struck me as like, I, and I, I had to question, like, okay, how how available am I? I actually try pretty hard to be available as a teacher because one thing I've noticed in in the kind of culture of insight retreats is that I always felt like if I went up to the teacher after a group or during a retreat and talked to them that I was sort of bugging them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably mostly my projection, but it might have been somewhat true. Uh, but I always had this feeling that, that there, was, there was an unavailable, maybe it was because of the noble silence, and the, no, I, I don't know what it was, but I always felt that uh, teachers were a little bit unavailable. And there was times where I would maybe reach out with with an email or back in the day when we used to write letters. And I I found that I wouldn't get very many responses. But over the years, a couple of teachers I've been able, I've noticed have become available. But I think we really have to think about that. Like even when I'm like with my kids in my house on a Tuesday morning where I have nothing to do and I'm like staring at this thing, I'm like... Oh, Got to check that email. Maybe, maybe so and so emailed me back about that thing, and I, I can feel this magnetic pull of my mind over to the device. I'm like, okay, as soon as I do this, I'm unavailable to my kids in this moment. You know, and you know, like, how available am I to just with the people that are in front of me right now? And I think our practice, if we do it well, and we think about these things, it's like. I think people really are in a time and a place where being just available to somebody, just offering somebody your attention, and just being available to be attention, to even, even if you're not interested in what they're saying or you don't agree, is almost like one of the most beautiful gifts that we can give to the world right now because everybody's attention is elsewhere. How, how often am I really, really available to even when I sit in meditation, right? Even when I'm practicing the availability practice, how available am I to what's arising without being preoccupied in what I need to do later and what I didn't get done before? You know, in the Buddha, one of his descriptions in the earliest teachings around what, what he awoke to, what did the Buddha awaken to, he talks about there being this, he's awoken to this middle ground between being in a grounding experience in the stream, as he calls it. You know, sometimes they call it what we do here with stream enterers, people who, who engage in this eightfold path have entered the stream of Dharma. Uh, is that we're either in this stream or we're in this preoccupation with a place or an idea or a concept. A person to be, a place to go to, a thing to have done, a thing that needs to get done. And we have to learn how to really navigate those, too. And not that being in the place and being preoccupied or thinking about your question earlier, not to derogatorize that as being bad or wrong, because we do need some left-brain thinking to, to pay the mortgage and to get to work and to perform the tasks of our life. But a lot of us, we live there. We live in this kind of alternate reality. You know, sometimes I feel like my life is in this, like... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with slap back delay but I feel like I'm in this reverb tank of like there's kind of in one moment there's what's actually happening and then there's like this slap back delay moment of like the commentary on like well what should be happening or could be happening and well it would be better if you did it like this and why didn't you do it like that and it's like I find myself in this kind of alternate universes all the time between what's really going on in this moment and what I think could be going on or should be going on or how things could be better or different, and what mistakes I made to get there, and whose fault is it, and mm-hmm. all of this kind of way that pulls me out. I become unavailable, and I become preoccupied with some idea of how things could be or should be. So I, I look at it like, you know, you can take these four ideas as like, I think we could look at them from the moment of direct experience. So as soon as we sit down and close our eyes, as soon as we do that thing, right, like, how do we become embodied? How do we become open to what's happening? How do we become interested? And how do we become available? Right? And putting down all of that overlay, all of the conditions we put on it. It would be better if this, I'd be better at that. But to just really embody those. And I've also noticed that over the long term, my ability to kind of uh, enhance and expand these qualities has greatly, greatly improved. You know, I feel much more embodied than I used to. I feel much more open. And I continue to be more open. A lot of times part of my inquiry is like constantly looking for ways in which I might be misperceiving things. And really trying to be interested in what's going on which I find all this stuff sort of takes work, because it's very easy to become interested in what should be happening right now. Very interested in how you could be different. (laughs) And not only if you were different, you'd be happier, I'd be happier. In fact, we'd all be happier if you were just different. Where do you go to from there? Right? But how quick does it take to get us in that kind of thinking? And then this idea of really trying to be um, available. You know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine, Vinny Ferraro, some of you might know, he's a teacher, he teaches at Spirit Rock, and him and I were part of Against the Stream for a long, long time. And we're talking just about this idea of of being, of being available. And, um, you know, really, I didn't get into this Business that, uh, to be unavailable, you know? Uh, not that I'm a lazy person, but I didn't try to dedicate my life to Dharma to kind of be preoccupied and busy all the time, which actually a lot of my Dharma teacher friends are. And we often have this conversation of how it, it, it's very seductive. I don't know what it is about busyness, but I think it's tied to a sense of productivity. And I think for a lot of us, it's tied to our sense of worth. And I'm only as worthy, as overly scheduled as I am. (laughs) Right? I don't know if any of you find this. I feel this is very rampant. It's almost a pandemic. And if I'm not busy, I've somehow failed or something. Like, What do you mean you have nothing? I'm like, I work really hard to not have to do nothing on a Tuesday once in a while. I've worked for weeks to get a day off. You know, I'm really trying to uh, say no and to... Make space and it's work, it's, it's been a lot of work. But I find that a lot of the stuff I've cut out to become available was stuff that wasn't serving me or the greater good anyway. You know, how much time do we squander on needless things? You know, just for the sake of distraction? Isn't distraction the greatest psychological addiction? I just don't want to be in there. I just want to be distracted from whatever it is that's happening right now. It's almost like, it's almost like a, a, a medicative device. Right? And, I, and, I, and, I, and when I look at this, and I've even done some inventory around this, like, I wonder how much, like, my phone, I don't know if you noticed, but the iPhone now will tell you how much time you've been on your screen each week, <laughs> which I think is kind of like, I think that was a bad idea for them. And, <laughs> right. like, I'll notice, like, I taught a retreat, Uh, a couple weeks ago, and I had my phone mostly off, and I turned my phone on, and they're like, your screen time is down 82%. I was like, whoa. I was like, I was only on my screen for one hour and 32 minutes that whole week. Uh, And so just like, and, and how much of that, you know, if I'm on my phone, if we're on our phones eight hours a week, how much of it is needless? Just like, you know, endless scrolling through digital trash, looking for a hit of pleasant... It's like, Come on, give me something. I'm so bored and uninterested right now. Right? Sitting on my front porch in the beautiful weather with all this mountain magic around us here, and there we are sitting there. Wow, that's crazy. Looking for a Dharma retreat to go to, <laughs> looking for a new mindfulness app, you know? Oops. Missed the boat on that one. So I want to just offer that for your reflection this evening. We do have some time left. I do want to take some questions about the talk or the meditation earlier. But thank you very much for your kind attention. Mm, I see an eager hand in the back. Yeah, I think this word non-attachment is very problematic. Um, you know, because you know, of course, it's a huge it's a huge part of the dharmic lexicon. Like we're stuck with this word non-attachment, but it can be there can be a lot of near enemies to non-attachment, like being cold or being indifferent or, or a tendency to isolate. Um, and if we look at the work, if we look at the secular side of it, what human beings really do need, if is, is you look at John Bowlby's work around secure attachment. So there's, there's a way in which you might want to reframe the way you think about what, it, what non-attachment is. Because non-attachment is okay, but where's the warmth? So when I, when I think about metta, like, sometimes I think of metta as the cool water. So it's, just, it's like this cool, or the cool warmth. Sometimes my teacher Steve Smith talks about it. The cool warmth of metta. The coolness of non-attachment, but also the warmth of connection. Mm-hmm. And how do we move through the both end of those? where there's a coolness there's a there's a non-reactivity there's a spaciousness in the non-attachment but there also needs to be some warmth in that non-attachment right and knowing how to modulate between the two and we can become overly warm and attached which can be problematic but we can also be cold and dismissive and too non-attached so we you know we don't want to be hot and cold we want that sort of cool cool warmth of being able to move through the world where we're not so attached or so preoccupied but we're also available and that we're connected and that we're engaging in connections with other people. And then we have to learn how to skillfully navigate that uh, in a way where we're not trying to come to some absolute answer on what that looks like. But I do think the word non-attachment is is somewhat problematic and, and probably gave rise to the question. that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, please. I'm curious about um, your technique for working with negative bias and thoughts that arise that could be positive in a relationship to something Mm -hmm. I did, but the negative thought comes up first, and many of them, rather than numerous things about this whatever it is that I did well. And then I'm also curious about this um, push for productivity, how you work to counter that. Well, the first one I think, the easy answer is, and I've I've done this, is is actually to cultivate the opposite. And so I do a practice called Harvesting Joy, which also could be likened to what we would call Mudita, or Appreciative Joy practice. And and I feel like that, generally speaking, on a general, overgeneralization, when I talk to people about these Brahma-Vihara practices, what most of the feedback I get is simply people aren't doing them. So you know, I would recommend people, even if they sit every day, to alternate into your practice, a uh, uh, mudita practice, where you're actually intentionally cultivating, inclining the mind towards the good. Rick Hansen has this whole practice and teaching on on um, harvesting the good or recognizing the good. Um, that's really, really rooted in science. Around instead of you know having a negative attitude about the negative attention of bias reinforces the negative attention bias. So actually, just going the other way. Uh, it's really, really helpful. You know, I don't know so much about the productivity. It's just something that I've recognized. I feel very fortunate that I haven't picked that one up um, for a variety of reasons I'm not really sure about, but I don't have that so much. Um, I'm happy to sit around and not do shit all day. <laughs> no guilt. None. You know, I don't have that. Um, you know, call it laziness, call it self-love, call it what you will, but I, I don't... I'm not going to question it. I'm just going to be grateful for it. But it, it is a thing, and I do see it. And part of it is just trying to build in time during the week where you just schedule the not doing of anything. It's like, okay, from Saturday morning, I'm not turning on my phone, and I'm just not doing anything. Uh, and, and I know a lot of people who have had success with that one, and it can be excruciating for some of us. Yeah. Is that helpful? Thank yeah. you. Any closing questions? All right, well, I'll say some few words. Here we have just a few minutes left anyway. It's almost seven. I try to get everybody out of here on time. Um, if you are interested in finding out more about what I do, I'm... Fairly available. (laughs) Um, I'm actually pretty available. I do have a lot of free offerings online. Uh, I have a podcast called Dave Smith Dharma, which you can get on iTunes or Spotify or almost any streaming podcast thing. It'll come up. It's called Dave Smith Dharma, and there's I don't know, there's maybe 200 talks and different meditations on there. The one that I just I just recorded tonight's talks on there. So if you if you're a Dharma streamer. You can you can find me there. Um, I do have retreats around the country. We have a, a retreat coming up for New Year's Eve, which is outside of Los Angeles, which is with Cheryl Sleen at Big Bear Retreat Center, which has recently opened. That's a five-night retreat that goes into New Year's, and we do this big, totally awesome, super cheesy, heartfelt <laughs> ceremony, and we sit into the New Year's, and we burn all our resentments from the year and do this intense and ceremony. So if you like that kind of thing... It's the only time of the year I do it, so if you want to see me cry and get real, uh, you can come. Uh, also, we have our Viacitos retreat, which is uh, the one that I, my, one of my favorite retreats and places to teach at, which is in August this coming year, and I believe the schedule for Viacitos goes up January 1. I don't know if, any, if anybody, I'm sure many of you have been sat at Viacitos before. Yeah. Are you talking about the lake? No, not the lake. Oh. It's a retreat center in down in northern New Mexico. Um, there's probably flyers around here about it. And uh, and also my schedule for the year is not up yet, but I have many retreat offerings. And in, in tw- what's next year, 2020? Um, so you can do that. And also I appreciate, um, any financial support and dana, John Dana, the word for generosity, is a big part of the Buddhist tradition, and definitely part of this inside lineage that we do as teachers in this tradition uh, teach freely um, and teach with an open with an open fist, holding nothing back. And uh, the opportunity is for for individuals and for all of us to see the practice of, of generosity as part of our practice, uh, and that you know all of the. The Donna that you give supports me in, my, in the work that I do, which allows me to continue to teach and to travel, and also supports my, my family and our livelihood. And um, I enjoy the experience of, of, of Donna, uh, probably a little more than my wife, and I appreciate that my family <laughs> allows me to engage in this risky business. <laughs> of living on generosity, but uh, it has served us well and and we really greatly appreciate any any support that you give us and I think there's boxes here you can put a, a check to Dave Smith or you can put cash in and in my website also dave smithdharma dot com and there's there's a lot of stuff on there you can you can check out um, but i'm sure I will be back it's great to see some familiar faces here feeling like a second home. So I really appreciate you inviting me to come down and to teach and I love sharing the Dharma with everybody and I always like to close with a dedication of merit if you feel inclined to join me. You can bring your palms together or not, doesn't matter. And so just taking a moment to feel into your heart and mind and as we all feel into this experience of being here, May any goodness that has resulted from our time together, any joy, kindness, care and generosity, any beautiful qualities that have been expressed here at our time together, we offer this to all living people and all living beings everywhere. And may all people, all living beings everywhere, including ourselves, be free of suffering in this world.